If you're a child in the worship service today and you are in preschool, kindergarten, or first grade, can you raise your hand? Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to see, good to see where you are. I, th- I think I know most of you, but it's wonderful to see where you're sitting. What if, if you're a child in second, third, fourth, or fifth grade, can you raise your hand? All right. Wonderful. Well, well as I was preparing this sermon, I created a story And uh, I was thinking of you guys when I made it because I think the story illustrates the passage we're going to look at in Scripture today. And uh, I like to call it the story of the good king and the crushed widow. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a beautiful land full of green forests and soft meadows to play in. And the parents of that country didn't care if their children got muddy or make a fuss over them. Uh, and it was a one, there, was, there was running streams and clear lakes to go swimming in in this kingdom. And the kingdom was ruled over by a king who was wise and powerful and good. Everything he did, he did with the best interest of his people at heart. The king lived in a giant castle, high and exalted on a lofty, uh, snow-covered mountaintop that stood above the green land. And uh, the people of the land were in awe of their king. They marveled at his power and wisdom, and they rejoiced in the riches that he spent building wonderful things for the people of the land. It was as if when you looked at the king, his main way of showing off was being generous to his people. And for a time, it was the best of all kingdoms and the happiest of all kingdoms to live in. But one day, something strange and sad happened. The people began to resent the king's authority. At first, there were some among them who argued with his law because they thought that maybe other laws would make more sense. But in time, it became clear that the reason people objected to his laws was because they were laws, period, and the people didn't want to be told what to do. They wanted to make their own law, and they wanted to choose their own king. And so they rebelled and declared independence from their king. But then something unexpected happened. News reached the most rebellious town in the kingdom that the king was coming down off the mountain with an army. And sure enough, uh, he arrived at their town in the evening. He was outside the town looking down on it. He came riding on a white horse prepared for battle with an army of warriors with him. And the people of the town were terrified. They knew that there was no way that they could defeat the king and his army in combat. There was no doubt in everybody's mind that if the king simply gave the command, none of them would live through the night. And so the people went and hid. They, find, they, they, they were trembling. They were terrified. But they tried to find places to hide where they could still look out and see what the king would do. And for a minute or two, the king sat there on his horse surveying the town, but no command was given. He got off his horse, gave the reins to one of his lieutenants, and then walked into the town down Main Street like he knew the place well and knew exactly where he was going. Uh, Off of Main Street, he took a couple of turns into the back streets, and in one of the, uh, the back streets of the town, he came to the house of a widow and knocked on her door. And when the widow opened the door and saw who had come to her house, she turned white with panic and fear. And then tears began to well up in her eyes, and she let the king in. The king closed the door behind him, and then they sat down at her kitchen table and began to talk. 
Now, the people of the town were too afraid to go close enough to eavesdrop on what was being said, but they did try to find angles through the windows of the widow's house to see what was happening, and as they watched, the king and the widow, they just talked. It was a, and it wasn't a monologue. The king wasn't lecturing her. They both talked and just talked and talked late into the evening. And that night, when it was late, uh, the widow gave the king a straw mattress to sleep on, and uh, the whole town uh, went to bed. And in the morning, when the widow and uh, the town woke up, the king was gone along with his army. Um, and the people of the town were amazed. Why had the king come, and why did he visit the widow's house? Well, the rest of the story answers those questions, and I promise you I'll get to it. But first, I want to look at a passage in Isaiah that I'm hoping my story uh, will illustrate. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 57, verse 14 today. The, the title of this morning's sermon is, The Holy One Dwells with the Humble. Uh, previously, we were in Isaiah 55, and what we learned a few weeks ago in Isaiah 55 is that you can't live well without the Word of God, and that one of the purposes of the Word of God is to change and transform us, to make us different people. But as you move into Isaiah 56 and 57, what you see is that God is going to give an indictment of the people of Judah for their wickedness. I believe this indictment is happening during the reign of Manasseh. Uh, Isaiah prophesied, uh, Isaiah served as a prophet for over 40 years. He served as a prophet during the reign of four different kings in Judah. Manasseh was the last king uh, that Isaiah prophesied under. And I believe this prophecy is happening during the reign of Messiah. I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. But when you look at the indictment, this is the indictment God gives. He starts off in chapter 56 indicting the leadership of the people. The leadership of the people uh, used their power uh, for unjust gain, to, to get money in unjust ways, and they didn't care about the people. They didn't do what good political leaders do to care for the protection and safety and well-being of their people. And then the indictment turns to the people themselves, because even though the leaders weren't great, the people were in solidarity with their leadership in terms of worshiping, turning from the worship of Yahweh to worship the gods of other nations. And so the nation descended into adultery and sorcery and cruelty. They even practiced child sacrifice, which was something King Manasseh did. That's why I think this is happening during the reign of Manasseh, because child sacrifice was not a part of what happened in the kingdom during the other kings that uh, Isaiah prophesied. Uh, during. And because of all these practices, because of their wickedness, God promised He would send judgment on them. And yet, even though the judgment was coming and wouldn't be stopped, at the end of God's indictment on the people, at the very end of chapter 57, verse 13, God gives an invitation to any individuals in the nation who will turn from their wicked way. He says, but he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. So in the midst of this corrupt and wicked nation, there are those who will take refuge in God and be spared from the judgment. And that sets up the passage we come to this morning. Let me read it to you. It's Isaiah 57. We're going to examine verses 14 and following. There we read, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. 
For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me uh, and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the, midst, in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked." What I'd like to do this morning is just go slowly through the logic of these verses, maybe a couple verses at, of, at a time, and then uh, fix our meditation, our application, if you will, on one particular thought in the passage uh, and, and finish with the story I began with. Let, let's look at the logic of this passage. The main point of verses 14 and 15 is that even though God is high and exalted, He is willing to dwell with humble people. Uh, Road-building language is used in verse 14 to signify a movement of people who are returning to the Lord their God. Uh, verse 14, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. Now, in verse 14, it's not clear who's talking yet, but verse 15 makes it clear. This is the Lord speaking, and what He's saying in essence is this, remove every obstacle, spiritually speaking, that gets in the way of my people returning to me. To, to use the, the physical picture, it, it's road-building language. Build up a causeway. Uh, remove the obstacles out of the, the, the trees that have fallen across the path. Get a crew out there and remove them so that my people can return to me. Because, verse 15, thus says the Lord, the, the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Uh, as you can see, there's a great contrast in this verse. Uh, on the one hand, God is transcendent. He is high and exalted and completely superior to the creation He's made. He's outside of His creation. He's not part of it. He doesn't exist in it in terms of time, right? He lives forever. Or of space, and God doesn't have a, a body. He is a spirit uh, and dwells on a high and holy place. Or even He's not part of the creation, the fallenness of creation in His character. He's holy. And being holy means that He doesn't do evil. He's not tempted by evil. And He doesn't tempt others to do evil. The New Testament tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. He is high and lofty and exalted. And yet, no, even though he's high and exalted, he chooses to live with those who are humble, who are contrite, who have lowly spirits. Now, the two key words in this verse, verse 15, would be having contrite hearts and having a lowly spirit. Lowly of spirit is just a Hebraism for humility. And a good New Testament example might be when Jesus talks about those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea of being poor in spirit is that before God, I admit, I confess, I declare spiritual bankruptcy, right? I'm not coming to Him 
uh, claiming that he should let me into heaven because I've been a particularly virtuous person. I'm admitting I've transgressed his law, and I'm simply throwing myself on his mercy. That word contrite was used in the physical realm by the Hebrews to speak of something that was crushed, those who are crushed in heart. And perhaps a good illustration of being crushed in heart would be the tax collector in the parable Jesus told of the two men who went to the temple to pray. And if you remember, the tax collector, he, he was a Jewish man, but he wouldn't go into the temple proper. He stayed outside in the court of the Gentiles and wasn't even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. And he, he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That would be an illustration of someone who is uh, crushed in heart. And the idea here is that these people are crushed over the awareness of their sin. They're humble, they're of lowly spirit, because they've looked at God's law, and they've seen their moral reflection in the law, and they see that it's an ugly one. They haven't lived virtuous lives. They've disobeyed His commands. And yet, God chooses to live with those people. Uh, so, taken together then, the hope of verse 14, that rebellious people will return to the Lord, it's possible because even though God is, uh, dwells in unapproachable light, yet He chooses to live with crushed and humble people. And when He lives with them, His holiness doesn't consume them. Instead, God somehow revives these people. He gives these people a new lease on life forever, permanently. Uh, now, that is good news. But there's two problems with that good news that I think you would, you know, theologically you understand this. There's two problems with this. First of all, what about their sin? I mean, it's good that they confess it for what it is, but what about their sin? They're still sinners in the presence of a holy God. And also, uh, even if God could forgive these people um, and the sin issue, the sin question gets dealt with, how are we going to have a mass return of people to God? I mean, given human nature, given the hardness of the human heart, this just doesn't seem very realistic. Well, I believe that the next two verses answer both those questions. What about sin, and what about the hardness of the human heart? The next two verses are going to answer those. And while those verses answer those questions, one thing those verses make crystal clear that I just love about this is that they, they make it clear that God is not naive about human nature. When He gets involved in saving people, He knows exactly what He's getting into and exactly how hard-hearted and messed up they are. Look at verse 16. Uh, God is going to revive the hearts of the lowly because… Uh, how's that going to happen? Verse 16, because I will not contend forever nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath or soul of those whom I have made. The word contend there in the first line was a Hebrew word. It was a technical Hebrew word for entering into an accusation against somebody in a court of law. It was, it was used for entering into legal proceedings against someone else in your community in a court of law. And so, maybe we could say it this way. God is angry at sin, but His anger has a terminating point, right? His wrath doesn't last forever. Uh, maybe we could say it this way. Uh, God gets angry at sin. That's His response to sin. But anger is not His essence. In His essence, He's love. God becomes angry, but He's love. And in His endless love, He's found a way for His case against these sinners uh, 
to not end in the sentence of death on them. He's going to find a way to acquit them, even though they're guilty. And let me just give you a spoiler alert. The way that he acquits them will not be by dropping the charges. Okay, so, and, and we'll see more about how he's going to do that in verse 18. In the meantime, the, the end of verse 16 presents a dilemma from God's point of view. On the one hand, God is the creator and judge of humanity. He must punish sin. However, if he lets his just anger at sin uh, burn against the contrite and lowly of spirit, their hearts would go f- grow faint. Their souls would faint away before him. Uh, the word breath at the end of the verse uh, is the same Hebrew word for the soul. So we're talking about the immater- immaterial part of a human being. Uh, God is just, but he knows if he lets his just anger burn against even the contrite and humble, uh, it would undo them. And so he finds a way to abate his anger, and we've already talked about how when we looked at the gospel message in Isaiah 53. But even so, even though God's going to accomplish this, humanity still is in a terrible place. Look at verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, and he's speaking of Judah here, uh, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away uh, uh, in the way of his heart. Now, there is something really horrible, there's something horrific about, uh, spiritually speaking, about verse 17. And maybe the best way I could illustrate it is with a football illustration. So, I played football in high school, and I remember one hot August day after we had worked on conditioning for a few days of practice, uh, we put on pads and helmets for the first time, and we were going to have contact. We were going to break up into our positions and do drills hitting each other. And we had this one coach that was particularly good at speech making, and uh, he wanted to get the, the high school boys all whipped up into a fury before we ran out and start, started hitting each other. And so he told a story. He said, uh, uh, I once had a, a young man play football for me that was, uh, um, he had amazing talent. He had wheels. He could fly across the field, and, and he was faster than anybody else. But the problem with him was that when he got knocked down, he would just stay down. He wouldn't get back up and keep playing until the whistle blew. Do, I, do you think I want that man on my team? And we knew this was responsive speech making, right? So we were like, no, coach, no, you don't want him. And so then he said, well, there was, I had another player who got knocked down, and he popped right up and kept pursuing the ball. But if he got knocked down again, he'd stay down. Do I want that player on my team? And we're like, no, no, coach, you don't want that player on your team. He said, well, I had another player with grit and heart. And he got knocked down and got up again. He got knocked down again and got up. He got knocked down again and, uh, and got up. And he just kept getting up and pursuing the ball until the whistle blew. Do you think I want that man on my team? And we were like, yes, coach, yes, yes. And we're ready to go just demolish each other, right? It's not that hard to get high schoolers whipped up and high school boys whipped up into a frenzy. And as soon as, as, uh, our, uh, as, soon as uh, our response died down, the coach raised his voice and said, no, I want the guy who's knocking everybody down. <laughs> now, now, think about this for a moment. If you, if you were to play football, you don't want to be the player that gets knocked around and pushed around on the field. And there's only two ways around it. You can either be bigger and stronger than everybody else, or you can be faster. You can kind of guess which one I was just by looking at me. 
<laughs> but not quite fast enough. Uh, uh, th- there, is, there is something that's terrible about playing the game of football and just getting pushed around and knocked over. Well, spiritually speaking, it is a whore to be struck down by God for walking in your own proud way and to pop right up off the ground and run even faster in the opposite direction that he wants you to go. But that's a picture of what Judah did when the Lord struck them and tried to get their attention by disciplining them as he said he would in the Mosaic Covenant. That's a picture of what they did. And the New Testament would paint that picture of your heart and mine as well. There are moments in life where God uh, brings some consequence into our life that is clearly and undeniably an effect of some sin we're committing, and there's no way around it, and we grieve over the consequences. We don't like it, but we're going to wake up the next day and keep doing the same thing. And, we know, and here's the thing. We know that this habit or this addiction is going to kill us. In our sober moments, we know that we shouldn't do it, and yet we're going to get up and keep doing the same thing. That is a picture of humanity. Now, this verse is not just, uh, uh, it doesn't just teach anthropology. It doesn't just teach about human nature that keeps going its own way even when God brings discipline. This is also saying something about God Himself. God loves humanity with a great love, but He doesn't look on humanity through rose-colored glasses. He's not naive. He knows that no matter how much He disciplines certain people, they're not going to turn back to Him. Uh, And that actually makes what comes next in verse 18, I think, even more precious when you consider that God knows what He's getting into. Uh, Verse 18, I have seen His ways, right? Not just His wicked ways, but the fact that you can strike Him down and He just keeps up, uh, gets up and keeps going His own way. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and restore comfort to Him and His mourners. So at the end of verse 17, everything looked pretty bleak, right? Because human nature doesn't turn back to the Lord, even when we kind of know that's what we should do. But now in verse 18, a new edict goes out from the Lord. Instead of continuing to just strike and discipline wayward people, God is going to heal them. And this healing will not come because uh, the people have changed their ways. They keep going astray. This healing is not going to come because God drops the charges that are against these people. He fully sees their waywardness. No, what's going to happen is this. In spite of the severity of their obsessive, compulsive rebellion against God, God is going to heal. The question then becomes, but how? How will He heal them? Well, you know this. I, I think you anticipate this. Now would be the perfect time. How is God going to heal these people? Now would be the perfect time for me to cross-reference to another Old Testament or New Testament text that talks about how God heals the, the spiritual sickness that is in all of our hearts. And that would be a good move for me as a pastor because here at Grace Fellowship Church, we teach that uh, we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Scripture interprets itself. And so that would be I'd be modeling good interpretation for you, but I'm not going to cross-reference here in this moment in the sermon, and here's the reason why. I think sometimes there is uh, value in just looking at what the passage itself says and what the implications are in the passage that would answer our question. So, if you ask the question, how will God heal, let's look at what the, the passage 
um, reveals that would give some indication of how he'll bring this healing. Verse 15 promises that God lives with crushed and humble people. Yet, verse 17 laments the way that Israel, and, and we could add all of humanity, keep on pursuing their own way regardless of the consequences. So then what will this healing be? Well, the implication of the language adds up to one thing. God will heal sinners by humbling them. The cure will come by a crushing of their pride, by a crushing of their self-righteousness and their sense of virtue. Uh, that's the way this is going to come. Uh, if God only dwells with crushed and humble people, and if Israel's sickness and ours is a compulsive rebellion, and if God promises to heal, then the healing has to be a humbling and the cure must be a crushing of our pride. I believe, brothers and sisters, this is Isaiah's equivalent of Jeremiah's new covenant prophecy and Ezekiel's new heart prophecy. You've probably heard of those, right? You're probably somewhat familiar with those because even though evangelical Christians don't tend to camp out in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what is the favorite portion of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that pastors quote all the time? It's Jeremiah's new heart and Eze or, sorry, Ezekiel's new heart and Jeremiah's new covenant. In fact, let me read those prophecies to you. In Jeremiah, we read this. This is uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Ezekiel has a similar prophecy that talks about how this will happen. Uh, it's in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, we read, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And the stone is a picture of hard-heartedness. I'll remove the, stone from your, uh, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all see a day coming when spiritually sick, hard-hearted rebels who keep straying will be supernaturally changed. Isaiah speaks of it as a healing. Jeremiah speaks of it as a new covenant that will be different than the Mosaic covenant. Uh, and Ezekiel speaks of it like a heart transplant where, where God will give people a tender heart and also put His Spirit within them and put His Spirit within them to influence them in a greater way than the Holy Spirit's influence under the Old Covenant. Uh, that new heart created by this heart transplant will be tendered towards God. It will be easily humbled. It will be easily crushed by the memory of past sins. And uh, it is people with this new heart that the high and transcendent and lofty God chooses to live with. 
And He will not only heal uh, proud, wayward hearts, He will also comfort those who mourn over them as they see the transformation that is made. Uh, And so, for both the sinner and those who mourn over the sinner, God will bring His healing hand, and it will create praise. Look at verse 19. Uh, This will create, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now, this peace adds a new dimension to the salvation God is offering. Now, this healing causes people to be at peace with God and also to praise Him. Now, what would we call that? When we talk about people praising God, we would call that worship. And this is a reminder for us as New, New Testament Christians that what God is doing is gathering worshipers to Himself in salvation. He is transforming people so that they become people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth instead of worshiping the creation and other gods and, and other created things. And perhaps uh, the most encouraging word for us in this room, because it's my perception that almost virtually everyone in here uh, is a Gentile, okay? And I think perhaps the most comforting word for us is peace, peace to him who is far. That's referring to us Gentiles. The near people in the passage are Israel and Judah, God's chosen people. And what the Apostle Paul does with this verse, the Apostle Paul quotes this very verse, verse 19, in Ephesians chapter 2. And what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Gentile Christians like you and me are the far-off ones that Isaiah is referring to, and that we receive uh, all the benefits of this healing through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this text. And Gentiles, though we are, these promises are ours because we're in Christ through faith. But there is a warning at the very end of the passage. uh, God gives this warning. Uh, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuge, uh, refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So, peace, peace to those who will confess their sin, but there will be no peace in this life or the life to come uh, for those who are wicked. Uh, that's, the, that's the logic and flow of the passage. But now I want to just narrow it down and focus on this one thought for our application, and that thought is this. The Holy One chooses to dwell with the humble. If you were to ask, what is the best part of receiving the healing that Isaiah speaks of in this passage? What's the best part of it? I think the answer would have to be that the Holy One comes to live with you and give you new life and revive your spirit. The only other option in this passage is ignoring God to live my own way, but that results in God striking me for my sin and God turning His face away from me in anger. It results in me living a life where I can't find peace. So, to have God live at peace with me and not turn His face away from me in anger, I think that's the greatest thing in the world. I think that's the greatest treasure in this passage, that the, that the lofty one chooses to dwell with those who are lowly in spirit. Uh, I think it's surprising that the high and lofty one is willing to dwell with sinners. I think it's surprising that the holy one would even take notice of, of us. Um, I, think it's, I think it's surprising that he who is holy, holy, holy is willing to dwell with people like you and me 
who are filthy, filthy, filthy in our sin, but God is willing to do so. And it's not a compromise of His justice or His holiness to do so. That's because His justice is satisfied by Him paying the penalty for our rebellion in the person of Christ. His holiness is satisfied because even though He's willing to live with contrite sinners, He heals them from their sin, that the penalty for their sin has already been paid, and He heals them from their sin in such a way that they eventually become perfectly holy as He is holy. It is good news for us that the Holy One dwells with the humble. And now, children, back to our story. So when I left the story, uh, the king had visited the widow's house. He had stayed the night, but he had left in the morning uh, with his army. And uh, the townspeople were wondering, why did the king come? And what was with bringing his army? Like, he didn't, why didn't he wipe us out when he had the chance? And why did he come to the widow's house? I mean, it's surprising that he would have visited any of us. But in particular, why did he go to the widow's house? It was her husband who was killed building the tower uh, that was a monument to our rebellion against the king. And she herself had served as a priestess in the concocted false religion that we created uh, as an alternative to the worship that the king commanded. She had been an organizer and a speaker at the protest rallies against the king, and she had only recently stopped participating in those. It was surprising that the king would come to any of their homes, but especially the widow. It was surprising, but little did the townspeople know that it wasn't a compromise for the king to go to her home, because not too long ago, there had been a man who had come from a neighboring town and he had brought with himself copies of the edicts of the king to give out to the people. Now, the people, when they figured out what he was handing out, they mocked him and ridiculed him. Some of the people took the book, not fully understanding what it was, and when they figured out what it was, they just threw it in the gutter because they weren't going to keep it. But when this widow uh, took the book from this man, she kept it, and she secretly began reading it in her home. And as she read it, she began to weep. And she would read and weep, read and weep. This went on for a number of days. In fact, the very day before the king had visited her, she had started the morning in her comfortable chair, uh, reading the last portion of the king's edicts, and she had ended up on the floor in tears, trembling. Because she saw for the very first time when she read his edicts that the king's laws were good. His plans for His people were glorious. Uh, she began to realize that uh, for the very first time in her life, she realized that true freedom didn't come in participating in some rebellion against the king, but by submitting to the king's laws in such a way that the king would heal all the wayward, wandering desires that went on in her heart. She finally saw that the king's plans for her life were better than her own plans for her life. All the pride she had taken in her own wisdom, all the pride she had in her own way was crushed. She was humbled, and she resolved from that day forward that she would be the king's if the king would have her, and she had real doubts that the king would have her because of what she read in his edicts. And that meant this, that when the king visited her and peaceably entered into her home, he wasn't entering the home of a rebel. He was entering the home of a contrite, humble woman 
who revered his authority. So his peaceable visit wasn't a compromise because the rebel pride of his hostess had been broken. That morning when she woke up and found that the king had gone, she found a little box on her kitchen table. And uh, she opened it up with her hands trembling, and inside that box she found a ring and a handwritten note from the king. And she took up the note and read these words. With this gift I cancel every sin and heal all wayward wants within. Sorry. The one who wears this royal ring will be the daughter of the king. Let's pray. Almighty King, you live in unapproachable light, are matchless in holiness, and we stand in awe of you. Thank you that you do not accuse forever, but heal and live with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. We confess to you that we have broken your law, we have rebelled from you and preferred our own way and been wise in our own eyes, and so we pray that you would pardon our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquities, and cleanse us from our sins. Heal us and revive our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.